Our most gracious Father, we come to your word as people who are hungry, who need to be nourished, and can only find nourishment for our souls in you and in your word. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would give us illumination, would, it, would illumine the text for us, would give us understanding in order that we can see not only how this applies to our lives, but that we might derive comfort from it. Use this time, Lord, to bring glory to Christ and to strengthen your people, to give us comfort and assurance encouragement for seasons in which we can grow so weary that Christ would be glorified even in those times. In his name we pray. Amen. A few years ago now, um, my daughter and I started having um, what to this day has been something of a running joke. Uh, She started loving the music of Billy Joel a few years ago, and I personally can't stand it. Um, So, (laughs) and she laughs because she knows it's true. Uh, So so whenever it comes on the radio, whenever we've got the radio on and Billy Joel comes on, she makes sure that, uh, that I see how much she enjoys it, and in turn, I make sure that she sees how much I don't uh, enjoy it. Um, But Actually, you know, when I think about it, I think I actually used to like Billy Joel's music until he put out one song, and and you know what it is, uh, that just makes me cringe, and it was this song that they played over and over and over, and they continue to play every every day um, over the radio. Uh, So the the odd thing about Billy Joel, though, I I do recognize uh, that he was a great musician. He he is a great musician. But as great of a musician and songwriter as he is, he hasn't actually put out any new material in 25 years, if you can believe that. 25 years. Uh, In a recent interview, he was discussing why that is, why there has been this 25-year gap in his writing and production. He said, I never felt as good as I wanted to be. My bar was Beethoven. And he'd go on to explain his lack of creativity and his lack of musical production by noting how difficult it was and is for him to deal with the voices of the critics. He said this, he said, because I studied music, I was suspect to critics. To them, you're supposed to be a diamond in the rough and polish yourself, end quote. And so because the criticism of of some of his music was so heavy, he just froze up, apparently, and stopped writing and producing music. The reality is that dealing with our critics is never easy. It's difficult, isn't it, to determine when criticism is justified and when it's not justified. And the fact of the matter is that you don't have to be somebody as as talented or as popular as Billy Joel to have critics, do you? No, in fact, you don't even uh, have to be famous at all. You don't even have to be alive to have critics, which is kind of strange to think about. And the reasons that people receive criticism, the reason that you or I or anyone might receive criticism, are really too numerous to list. Maybe somebody just doesn't, uh, doesn't want to take the blame for something that they obviously did, and so you are guilty by proximity. That is, you are the, just the next in line. You're, you're closest to them, and so the guilt gets put on you. Or maybe somebody is jealous of you, and so they start nitpicking at your faults, which, of course, we all have, but uh, we don't need to, to put them on display and have everybody else putting them on display all the time, right? Uh, or maybe somebody you know, just wants something that you have. Maybe it's a possession, maybe it's a title or a career. And uh, so they're convinced that if they just criticize you enough, uh, often enough and thoroughly enough, either you'll leave because you're sick of it, or um, somebody will think that their ideas are so much better than yours that you will be replaced. But in an age when Absolutely everybody has the ability to have a platform and to be heard on social media. Don't think that when somebody criticizes you, it isn't out there for the world 
to see. And that is a lot for somebody to deal with. All you need to do is look at the statistics regarding suicide and what they call cyberbullying, and you'll understand that for most people, receiving criticism in a public way in front of the world is too much for people to handle, which is one of the reasons that we should be careful with our kids on social media. One article says this, it says, quote, research presented at the 2017 Pediatric Academic Societies meeting revealed the number of children admitted to hospitals for attempted suicide or expressing suicidal thoughts doubled between 2008 and 2015. But it's not just kids. It's also adults. Another article said this. It said, quote, Researchers at the University of Western Ontario interviewed friends and family of people who had committed suicide and found out that 56% of those deceased exhibited a perceived external pressure to be perfect. End quote. I mean, do you realize that suicide is now the 10th leading cause of death in the United States? And as the suicide rate has increased. What else has gone up in proportion? Social media use. Social media use, where a person can be slandered relentlessly right in front of the world before they even have an opportunity to say or do anything about it to defend themselves. See, the reality is we're all going to feel pressure at times. We're all going to feel uh, criticized at times. We're all going to feel the, the, the weight of trying to be perfect, that like, like we're supposed to be, you know, that people expect more of us than we're able to uphold. And maybe that'll come from friends. Maybe it'll come from people we just want to be friends with. Maybe it'll even come from family, and it can get nasty. I mean, criticism isn't always justified. It's often not completely justified. And it's more painful for us to deal with that when we know that it's not justified, right? But either way, the question is this, friends. How are you going to handle it when somebody criticizes you? How are you going to handle it? What's your coping mechanism? Well, Psalm 4 is a song uh, like all the Psalms, they are all songs, uh, that tells us how David dealt with his critics. And just like, uh, just like I said when we studied Psalm 3 last month, David's problems are a little bit different from any problems that we might face, right? Okay, he's, he was king of Israel, and uh, as far as I know, none of us has been chosen by God to be king of Israel. So yeah, our problems are not uh, what his problems were, right? But uh, you know, I mean, as king of Israel, um, he's probably more open to criticism because it seems like uh, the more powerful or the more influential somebody becomes, the more open to criticism they become. But while his problems aren't our problems, just like with Psalm 3, his problems aren't our problems, his response is nevertheless what our response should be. The way that he models dealing with with criticism, unjust criticism, is the way that we should deal with ours as well. Based on the information that we can gather about Psalm 4, it seems like the criticism of David uh, stemmed from a famine that was taking place at some point during his time as king. If there's anything that's going to cause people, citizens, to question a leader, it's when things aren't going great, even when the circumstances aren't uh, in that person's control. Even, even when things aren't going great, and it has nothing to do with the way somebody's leading or, or not leading a nation. But if you look at verse 7, David says this. He says, to God, you have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. That's the only hint we have for the context of, in which this psalm was written. There uh, at least seems to be a strong possibility that there would have been uh, some kind of shortage, which would have been caused by a famine, maybe even just a, a minor one. It doesn't take much for people to feel justified in criticizing. But there are three sections of this psalm. The psalm begins with an urgent plea to God. It then moves from uh, this urgent plea to God to an urgent plea to David's enemies and accusers and, and critics. And it concludes with David expressing comfort of peace, the comfort of assurance and security, knowing that he is in God's hands. And so thus the psalm ends with him being able to sleep. 
And for this reason, Psalm 4 is what they would call an evening psalm. I don't know what it says in your Bible, but in my Bible, uh, it says, under Psalm 4, it says, evening prayer of trust in God. Uh, So this is an evening psalm. That is, it's a psalm that you would typically end the day with, uh, just like David does. He ends up going to sleep at the end. So what we'll see as we study this psalm together is that we can confidently trust in God to hear us and to answer us when we pray. And not only that, but we can also expect us to change as well when we pray. When you have the confident trust in God, All the problems that we face in life, including criticism, just seem so insignificant in comparison. When you you set your heart and your mind on God, everything else seems so small. That's how David moves from panic to peace, from being very concerned to being composed. So we begin with David's urgent plea to God. Let's look at verse 1 of Psalm 4. Psalm 4 verse 1 says, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. Now the first thing that we should note is that this was a song that was to be played as worship on stringed instruments. Uh, Some people think that this is an inspired part of the text. Some people don't. But it says, for the choir director on stringed instruments, a psalm of David. That's in the ancient manuscripts. So there's strong reason to believe that that's actually an inspired part of the text as well. So what we need to understand is that thousands and thousands of Israelites, ancient Israelites, actually sang this song uh, for worship. Thousands of them, generations of them, sang this as a means of strengthening their faith and instructing their hearts and minds. And the thing I love about this is the realization that this is a subject that everybody from the king to the, to the lowest peasants can gain from, can relate to. It was and is God's inspired, infallible word in the form of a song, given to teach and to edify, to strengthen his people. And so it's certainly a subject that we can relate to as well. No matter where you are in life, no matter if you are a king or the lowest of all the peasants, this psalm is for you. See, we have a tendency when somebody criticizes us, whether that's justly or, or unjustly, to try to do something about it to protect ourselves, to, to save our reputations from falling into the, uh, into the gutter, from, from the perceived uh, notion that you know, our, our name is being dragged through the mud. And it's really a form of self-preservation. And the temptation that we face is as soon as we learn about it, to do something about it immediately. But David doesn't. So this is the first thing that we should see. David doesn't respond immediately. He doesn't immediately try to protect himself. Shots are being fired, but he doesn't immediately put up his defenses. Rather, what he does is he gets on his knees and he turns his heart and his mind to God. Answer me when I called you, David pleads. Some translations say, hear me instead of answer me, which is also a valid translation. The the answer that David is seeking here is simply for God to hear him. That's it. The verse ends with David saying, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. So this isn't one of those psalms that suddenly turns into uh, what you would call an imprecatory psalm, uh, which is where the the psalmist um, asks God to strike down their enemies or to harm their enemies. In fact, this request to hear him, is the only request that David makes to God in the whole psalm. Hear him. Isn't there great comfort in just knowing that God does that? In simply knowing that the God who spoke all of creation into existence and who sustains all of creation by the power of his word, that he hears us like a father who hears his children screaming out in agony, or in distress. He stops what he's doing, and he he listens. Sometimes the greatest mercy that God can give to us is the assurance that he's with us and that he hears our prayers. David knows that he can turn to God 
and just be honest and lay all of his problems out on the table because he knows that God already knows what they are. God isn't oblivious to what has been going on in David's life. God knows everything that David is worried about, everything that he is hearing about, everything that is causing him distress. You see, friends, when you come to God in prayer, you you don't need to have some kind of appearance. You you don't need to put on your your best language or uh, your best clothes to come to God in the silence of nights in which you can't sleep because you're so worried about what people might be saying about you. You're so worried about your critics. You don't have to pretend that you feel a way that you don't really feel because God already knows how you feel. God already knows, and yet he listens. He hears us, which just frees us up to just be transparent, to just be completely open and honest with God. And immediately, David is confronted with a reality about himself. Look at how he addresses God. He says, answer me, O God of my righteousness. Some translations will say, uh, O my righteous God. And, And both translations work. Because both translations point to the fact that God is the one who is righteous. And that apart from him, we are not. We are not. And David was actually, uh, he was acutely aware that apart from God, he was a sinner through and through. That's why David requests that God be gracious to hear his prayer. You catch that? He sees that if God is going to hear him, it is an act of mercy. It's an, it's an act of grace. It's not something that David deserves. I mean, it's the same with us, right? It's not like God owes us his attention, is it? I mean, compared to other people, David might appear externally uh, like he's righteous, and the same goes for us. If you compare your behavior to the behavior of, of other people out there, you might look like you are more righteous than them, but the truth is that whatever righteousness you have, whatever righteousness David has, whatever true righteousness you might have, it's all of grace because you have none of your own to speak of and neither do I. You might look righteous in comparison to other people, but you don't look righteous, and neither do I, in comparison to God, and neither did David. Not even close. None of us. If you have true righteousness, it's the righteousness of God himself, which God credits to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's why David refers to God as the God of my righteousness. David's righteousness isn't his own. It's the righteousness that God has credited to him, that God has has transferred, imputed to him by God's grace, which is David's only hope. And that's our only hope too. And so David realizes that if God is going to hear him, and he will, It'll be an act of unwarranted grace on God's behalf. So David fixes his hope on God, which is right where it belongs, by the way. And he uses his previous experiences to help him do so. Look what he says. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. David here is referring to times in the past when his enemies and his opposition and the circumstances in his life made his destruction seem like a sure thing, made it seem certain. He thought back probably to the years in which he was running for his life when King Saul had sought to murder him. One way to make sure that your prayers are not answered, by the way, is to not pray. It's just to not pray. But if you want to see God answer prayer, you must pray. It seems so obvious. And yet, often when people say, I'm I'm waiting for God to do something, they haven't taken the time to pray first. If you want to see God answer prayer, you must pray. One of the greatest ways to grow in confidence in God is to pray regularly and then to be able to look back on those things that you prayed for and to see the way that God has answered those prayers. Remember Hannah Mae? 
This week, I, I uh, got news that the woman that I told you guys a few weeks ago, she listens to our sermons online, and she was dying of brain cancer. Her doctors called her and said, we have no explanation for this, but you are in remission. Isn't that awesome? But the thing is, if you don't pray, you have nothing to look back on. You've got to pray. Think of the way that God had instructed the Israelites as they were entering into the promised land, which uh, was then occupied by foreign nations, right? Pagan nations that were larger than they were. Nations and people that were, were stronger than they were. They, were. they were like giants, right? And we read how God instructs his people as they go in, when they go in. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 17 and 18, God says this to them. He says, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. See, they were to remember, they were to look back on how God had acted to save them in their distress in the past, and looking back on how God saved them in the past, how God uh, responded in the past, would give them hope for the present and the future, would give them confidence for the hope in the future. And so they were instructed this way over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Think back to how you were saved. Think back to the way God delivered you, right? over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And the same goes for us. You know, when your soul is distressed about any situation, but criticism more specifically in the context of this psalm, remember how God has acted to save you. But to also not only save you, not only rescue you from hard situations, but to even give you trials that would cause you to grow in your faith in Christ. What confidence you can gain from looking back on what God has done in the past by, by remembering what he's done. And so David's request is twofold. First, that God would have mercy on him and, and hear him. And after just one verse, just verse 1 here in Psalm 4, there's a change that takes place. And it's not a change that takes place in God it's a change that takes place in David. Something changes in his heart and mind. Something changes in his attitude. David will now turn his attention uh, to, the, to focus on uh, the critics um, for the rest of the psalm, for, for the next portion of the psalm. But he doesn't do so out of bitterness or ill will toward them. Rather, he has remembered what God has done for him, Right? That's, what, that's where the change takes place. Remembering uh, that God has showed him mercy, remembering that God has shown him grace, evokes compassion in David toward his critics, who are obviously, as we'll see before we finish here today, they are obviously wandering from God. They are idolaters. See, nobody, not even the harshest, not even the most untrue critic, has sinned against David as badly as David has sinned against God. And David realizes that apart from God's grace, he stands just as condemned before God as the worst critics do, the biggest liars and critics, which stirs up mercy and compassion and forgiveness in David's heart. And it's the same with us, friends. When you understand that nobody in all of your life has ever sinned against you as badly as you have sinned against God. Listen, you can forgive anybody for anything. You can forgive anybody for anything. And that will help you in every relationship you have, especially marriage. Especially marriage. So what ensues here is a call for, uh, by, by David for them to repent, for the critics to repent, and to turn their hearts and minds back to God themselves. Let's look at verses 2 to 5. David continues addressing the sons of men, his critics. He says, O sons of men, how long will my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Selah. But know that the Lord has... Set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. 
Tremble and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. So his response is not to say, you know, you guys can just burn in hell for all I care. You guys can just sit under God's condemnation for all I care. No, the greatest love, the, the greatest act of love is to see somebody who's wandering from God, who, is, who doesn't have their heart turned to God and to call them to turn to God. But we should note the wisdom of the order in which David does things here. He first addresses God before he addresses his critics and his enemies. That is wise. When somebody does you wrong, your, your, your knee-jerk reaction is to, to address that person, but you need to address God first. You need to go to him because that'll help you purify your motives if nothing else. So David has some wisdom in the order in which he does things here. And these are powerful people, by the way, that he's addressing who have attempted to undo him with the power of their tongues, their speech, And yet, despite the attempts that they've made to harm David's reputation, to drag his name and character through the mud, he extends love to them. He extends forgiveness and and grace to them. He speaks kindly to them and of them. He tries to turn them from their errors, despite the harm that they have done to him. And he does so in a winsome manner. So he starts by asking them some questions, questions which are specifically designed to make them pause to consider what their own priorities in life might be, questions that are designed to cause them to look inward, to examine themselves, questions that if his enemies will honestly ask of themselves, will reveal that his critics were all in sinful idolatry. Questions, by the way. That David should only ask if he's checked himself first so as to not address his critics and adversaries hypocritically. So he asks two questions, two very probing questions of them. The first one is this, how long will my honor become a reproach? In other words, how long will you turn my honor into shame? There's a sense of injustice here. How long will you make me feel ashamed even though I know that I'm innocent, even though whatever you're accusing me of, I have not done? If you consider the way, by the way, that the, the news media criticizes our president, uh, often unjustified, sometimes justified, you can understand kind of what David was up against. Uh, you know, you don't have to like the president, God never asks you to personally like who he places in authority over you. Instead, what God does is instruct us to honor the authorities who are over us. Honor your father and mother. We know that one, right? Ten Commandments. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 5.17. He says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And 1 Peter 2.17 tells us, this is a tough one, honor the king, honor the emperor, honor the president, honor the governing authorities. You don't have to like them, but as Christians, we have been instructed to honor them. In fact, to honor all people, to respect them, because God is the one who has ordained the authorities that are over us. But David's critics apparently didn't like God's choice, which resulted in them uh, trying to assassinate or at least assault David's reputation and character. The second question he asks is this, how long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? See, when you reject and dishonor the authority figures that God has placed over you, you are not just dishonoring them, and you are not just rejecting them, you are also rejecting and dishonoring God himself. David's critics were acting as if they knew better than God did who should reign over them, who should rule over them. They knew that God himself had chosen David. They knew it. Everybody knew it. 
but they convinced themselves that God didn't choose what was best for them. You ever feel like that? You're facing a a circumstance or a situation in your life and you start to wonder if God has chosen what is best for you? In other words, these critics are exalting themselves above God. It's a dangerous place to be. They're loving what is worthless, and they are aiming at deception. They're not aiming at truth. They're not even loving something that is worth loving. They were idolaters. And so David is asking them to think about it, to apply these two questions to their lives. Selah, he says, which means think about it, meditate on it, ponder it. How might you be guilty? He wants them to consider and to let these questions sink in. Now what follows from here are seven imperatives, seven verbs that are instructive to his adversaries, to his critics. The first one, look at verse three with me now. Uh, The first one is know. He says, know that that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. The instruction there is to know, to realize, to, to remember, and put it at the front of their minds. It's interesting to realize, by the way, that the only other place in the Old Testament where, uh, it, where the, the, the word that gets translated as set apart here gets used, and that was when God was making distinctions between the Israelites, or the Hebrews, and the Egyptians in the time of the Exodus. Why wouldn't the Israelites face the plagues, the curses, the afflictions that the Egyptians would face because God had set them apart. Now, if this is intentional on David's part, and it certainly seems like it is, since that's the only other place where this word is ever used in the Old Testament, David was essentially doing two things. Number one, he was reminding them of God's choice, God's sovereign choice, reminding them that God himself had placed David in the position that he had. And secondly, he was telling his critics, you are acting like the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Remember what happened with them. That might be you. I mean, he was warning them that that maybe they're at risk of of God dealing with them the same way that God dealt with the Egyptians. Is that possibly why he reminds them? The Lord hears when I call to him. The Lord hears when I call to him. That should be a sobering reminder to somebody who knows how much God loves his children. His enemies should be greatly concerned at the fact that God hears him when he calls, which reminds me of, a, of what the queen said in, her, um, in, in the days of the famous reformer John Knox. Uh, John Knox was a, was a great reformer who brought about great change in the church, and the queen said this. She said, I fear nothing except the prayers of John Knox. See, David hadn't chosen to be king. God had chosen David to be king. And with us, this statement should serve as a reminder that God has set us as his people apart from the world. He brought us into fellowship with himself and with his people based on his choice, not on ours. And if God had set us apart, has set us apart to be his people, he will not abandon us when we are in danger. The early church was very concerned about being killed before the return of Christ. They were concerned that their salvation, that their sanctification would not be completed. And that's the hypothetical um, scenario. That, that's, that's kind of what Paul is addressing in Romans 8, 38 and 39. Could, could, could God's plans for his people be thwarted? Uh, could, could, uh, could death separate the church from God's love? And his answer is, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The sword may fall. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. Circumstances might get really bad. You might be persecuted and have to run for your life, but there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. 
Take comfort in your election, Christian. God is sovereign. Nothing will come against you that God is not only there with you through, but that He has not ordained, that He has not allowed. His purposes for you will be accomplished, and often His purposes for us are accomplished in trials, in very difficult situations in which we are forced to look to God. We're forced to rely on the strength that can only be found in God. Take comfort. Take comfort in your election. Derek Kidner notes this in his commentary. He says, God's choice of a man, not merely for office or honor, but for fellowship for himself, is the ultimate answer to the most wounding of aspersions and discouragements. End quote. Take comfort and remember that if God is for you, who can stand against you? So what are the critics to do? Let's say that they take these questions to heart and they're left wondering, okay, David, you're right. We're we're guilty. We're in idolatry. What are we supposed to do now? The answer is repent. Repent. That's what follows in light of what David has reminded them of and asked them in verse 3. That brings us to the next imperative, the next instruction, the next command. The command is tremble. Tremble. Next imperative. And do not sin. Now that might sound a little bit familiar to you. See, some translations say be angry and yet uh, and, and do not sin instead of uh, tremble and do not sin. Um, if it says be angry, if it's translated as be angry and do not sin, it connects us to Ephesians 4.26 where Paul quotes this verse and says be angry and yet do not sin. In essence, to make a long story short, what Paul was quoting there was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. But I would say that the word tremble might be a closer uh, translation of what David was trying to say based on what we see in verse 5. In verse 5, he says, Offer the the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. I mean, why are sacrifices uh, necessary? What is it that makes sacrifices uh, required or necessary? Sin, right? And in all truthfulness, Sin should make us, should make anyone tremble before God because it should make us fear God. The implication is that if they fear God rightly, they will tremble and stop sinning. So he's basically saying meditate in your heart as you're going to bed. And be still, David says, giving giving us the next two imperatives, bringing the total to five. Uh, Meditate and be still. In other words, David is telling them to turn to God in the privacy of their own homes. Lay in bed, think about it, let it sink in, he tells them. And if they'll do this, they'll need to know the final two imperatives, which are in verse 5. This is number 6 and 7 of the imperatives. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. One great uh, key for studying the Bible is as you're going through a verse or you know a psalm or whatever, circle the verbs. Circle the verbs. It, it's it's very interesting. It's very interesting in this case. It, it tells us uh, that there are seven specific things, and it culminates in what is necessary to make things right. But this is what repentance looks like, friends. The problem is that if the person turns to the scriptures to see what kind of uh, sacrifice of righteousness God requires, they will realize that they don't have any of their own righteousness to offer. They have absolutely none. David himself had none. I have none. You have none. And yet we have not only all sinned against our fellow man, but every single one of us has continually sinned against a holy God who requires a righteousness that you and I do not have and don't have the ability to provide on our own. So what can we offer? Faith. Faith. We have to remember that without faith, it is impossible. To please God. Faith in what, though? 
has to be in the right object because everybody has faith in something. Faith in what? And this is where we must remember the promises of God, especially the promise to which David and all of his contemporaries looked forward to, just as we look backward in time to, and that is the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Fully man and fully God, as the scriptures foretold. He never once sinned, never once stepped outside of the will of the Father, never falling short of perfect, undefiled righteousness, upholding the demands of the law as the scriptures foretold. And so thus he himself alone is qualified to stand in the place of wretched sinners who will repent and who will put their faith in him. Taking the wrath of God upon himself in their place and atoning for their sin in order that they could stand before God justified, forgiven, cleansed, declared innocent in the very righteousness of God himself who provided the very sacrifice that he required. The person who does that both can and should trust God. The person who has put their confidence, put their hope, put their trust, their faith for salvation in Christ alone can and should trust God with everything. With everything. Because if God can provide for our greatest need, which is salvation, atonement, the once and for all sacrifice that can set us right with God, bring us into right standing with God, if he can provide for our greatest need, why would he not provide for lesser needs as well? We can trust him with all things and in all things because there is nothing in life, there is no situation in which he will not be with the person who stands before him in the very righteousness of Christ our Lord, imputed to him by grace alone, through faith alone. So friends, I have to ask, do you stand in the very righteousness of Christ before God through faith? Have you trusted in Christ alone to take your sin upon himself and to bear the wrath that you deserve in your place? Do you believe that his sacrifice on the cross was for you personally? Do you believe that Jesus is your only hope? your only Savior, your only Deliverer, your only hope of salvation? Have you learned to hate the sin that was laid upon Christ and for which he shed his blood? Selah. Selah. Examine yourselves. Think about it. And think about it whenever you're in distress because if you have repented and put your faith in Christ alone, then God is with you and God is for you even in the harshest circumstances, even in the face of the most severe criticism you could ever face, even in the darkest and the deepest valleys that you will journey through in life. He is with you and for you. And when you realize that, I mean, when you really take that to heart, you know what happens? You do what David did. You go from being distressed to perfectly fine. You can sleep. You can sleep. No matter, no matter what false accusations your critics are making about you, you can rest in the assurance that we have in God, in Christ. And that's what David expresses next, assurance of his security, assurance of his salvation, the peace of knowing that if God is with you and for you, you're as safe and secure as you could ever possibly be. So let's look at verses 6 to 8. The psalm concludes saying, Many are saying, Who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You have put gladness in my heart more than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Was he safe? Maybe not 
from the way it looked. But he knew that God was with them and for him. And so he could make that statement. Would David's critics repent and relent? Would they back off? It probably didn't seem likely on the surface. But whether they did or didn't, we we don't know. But whether they did or didn't repent and put their trust in God, the most important thing for us to see here is that David did. David did put his trust in God. As he cried out to God, begging for God to hear him, he remembered the ways that God had come through for him before. If God had come through 156 times before, this was going to be number 157. If it was a million times before, it was going to be a million and one. The critics had apparently been saying what you see here in verse 6, who will show us any good? Who will show us any good? In other words, which foreign idol... Which satanic god, which pagan religion will do for us what we think is best? That's what they're asking. I mean, the the Israelites repeatedly uh, pursued and turned their hearts to false gods, didn't they? Uh, the, The Old Testament bears witness to that over and over again. The truth is that no idols, no false gods can show us real, legitimate good but our God can. The one true living God can. And so in the moment, David reflects on the words that I close every service with. We call it the Aaronic blessing, named after Aaron, uh, Moses, you know, in the days of Moses. Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 to 26, it says this. It says, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift his countenance on you and give you peace. David remembers that blessing. He remembers that benediction, benediction, bena, good, diction, word, that good word, that blessing in an abbreviated form here in verse 6. And the result of meditating on that, meditating on God's word, meditating on God's blessings, meditating on God's goodness and favor toward him, the, the result is that David is filled with peace and joy More joy, he says, than the amount of grain and wine the famine had deprived them of. It's a joy that is superfluous. It's abundant. It's overflowing. It's more than we could possibly need. It's a joy that floods over David's heart and transcends his circumstances. The joy of the Lord is greater than the largest harvest of crops imaginable. And with it springs a deep, rich well of peace that is beyond understanding. A peace that passes understanding. See, friends, being a Christian will not guarantee a life without hardship. Being a Christian will not guarantee a life without trials. If anything, it will increase the likelihood that you will face hardships and trials. But Jesus offers us this comfort. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome this world. And friends, I want you to have that joy. I want you to know what the joy of salvation in the midst of difficult circumstances is like. I want you to have this kind of peace. But you need to know it's only found in Jesus. It's only found in Jesus. And it's a joy and peace that is greater than the harshest circumstances, the harshest criticisms that you will face in life. If you have put your faith for salvation entirely in Christ Jesus, then the sufferings of this present age are only producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So whatever it is, that you're up against in life, whatever you face in life, whatever opposition, whatever criticism, whatever accusations, whenever somebody tries to drag your name through the mud unjustly, if you are in Christ Jesus, you could not be more secure. You could not be more safe than you already are. Remember that and live by that. And like David, sleep on that. Our most gracious Father,
we confess to you that in the weakness of our flesh, when things aren't going our way, our first instinct is to trust ourselves. Our knee-jerk reaction is to defend our honor. And so we thank you, most gracious Father, for this example that David gives us. That we would come to you first. That we would dip our pails in the well of your joy and your peace and be able to sleep and to deal with whatever our circumstances may be out of that rather than out of hostility or unforgiveness. We thank you that you sent Christ to overcome the world and that the joy that we have in him is greater than any circumstance that we face in life. We thank you that it is by grace that you hear us. We thank you that it is by grace that you have redeemed us. And so, Father, in the midst of difficult circumstances, we ask that the Holy Spirit would bring about memories that we have of times when you have saved us, times that you have delivered us, that we would reflect on your greatness and your goodness and your love for those who are in your Son, Christ Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the comfort that we can gather from it. I pray, Lord, that as we, uh, as we depart today, that we would take this with us because it's a situation that we'll all face in one way or another. But teach us, O oh Lord, to find joy in Christ and not in our circumstances, that he would be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.